Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Brittany. And this is a science fiction book club podcast. Each month we select a book and talk about it over two episodes. This month, our book has been The New and Improved Romy Futch uh, by Julia Elliott. And this is our post-read episode for the book where we're going to talk about it in depth. As you heard, uh, Matt is not with us today. He sadly had to go and run around and do some personal stuff today. But we do have a friend of mine, uh, Britt Ferguson O'Duffy, who has agreed to come on and give us her perspective on this book. I recommended it to her a few years ago, and she really liked it. So I wanted to convince her to come on and talk about it with us. So, uh, Brittany, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, uh, I uh, currently work in advertising market research at Ogilvy on the research and intelligence team. Um, I have background in English and psychology, were my undergrad majors, and now I'm also in grad school studying social psychology and consumer behavior at NYU. Cool, cool. Yeah, so like definitely, I think some relevant fields to the book <laughs> that we just read. Um, as well as I think kind of, it's not entirely similarly to me, but you know, Matt, Matt grew up in a big city, whereas I grew up in like a rural Alaska and I know you grew up in maybe more suburban or kind of rural mountain states. Yep. I'm from Colorado. I grew up in a small mountain town just west of Denver up in the foothills. And so some of these themes were really relevant. My experience was different than obviously a rural South, but I think that the hunting community, there is there is one in, not necessarily in Evergreen, Evergreen's much more liberal, affluent, but uh, I think that this book resonated on some levels, um, especially now living in New York City and having spent a lot of money on education, uh, puts you <laughs> in a different different tier and different sort of social category. Right. And I think that's one thing in particular that we'll be talking about is the way that this book kind of like, you know, I, I mean, so one thing to, to state actually before we get into that is um, just a quick content warning up front. Uh, we will be talking about spoilers for the entire book kind of like from the beginning here. So if you have not read the book and don't want it spoiled, I, you know, you like go listen to our pre-read episode. We do that without any spoilers. It'll give you a good idea of what's in the book. Um, but also, you know, if you've read the book and you or if you haven't read the book and you don't mind spoilers, like, I, you know, I think this should be a fun conversation either way. Um, I know I personally like listen to movie podcasts without necessarily having seen the movie. So <laughs> um, we did a whole episode about that last week, too, if you want to go listen to that. And then, um, you know, also there's some pretty like real topics in the book. I mean, there's definitely a lot of discussion of, you know. It's not quite in these terms, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of depictions of depression, of alcoholism, of drug addiction, of um, a lot of like hunting and both like human body horror as well as like animal death and and I mean taxidermy. It's like very <laughs> like in the weeds. And we'll be talking about kind of all of this stuff. So I, I would say if you have a problem with any of that, you should you know just be aware of that going into the conversation. Is there anything I'm missing? Would you think? Um, I think that if you have a sort of, if you are against pseudo-intellectual banter, um, <laughs> I would also recommend avoiding this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> slash mean, this slash, book. Slash all podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but this book in particular really delves into the these concepts of post-structuralist theories and philosophy. And 
it's very, very pseudo intellectual, but also intellectual and smart. So, yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting dif- differential that I want to get into <laughs> here. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, like I was saying, in particular, one of the things that I'm really interested to talk about in terms of my own experience, as well as, you know, kind of abstractly, is this sense the way in which like education is kind of made literal here as a, you know, like brain downloads. And, but I think the book is really talking about education in America and about the way that, you know, it acts as a gateway between, between classes, but also like a gatekeeper between like socioeconomic class in America. And I think, I think that there's like definitely a big element of that in the book that I'm going to want to dig into. And I thought that, you know, you would, you would have <laughs> some similar feelings and, and thoughts, or at least like, you know, uh, a similar perspective to, to offer different thoughts too. So, yeah, so that's more or less that, um, you know, in the last couple of episodes, we've run through a quick pro- plot synopsis. So I think we'll do that. We'll just kind of hit on a couple of the characters and feel free to like, you know, jump in at any point during this, but the, the book starts off with, um, we meet Romy Futch, who is a schlubby kind of down and out taxidermist, which is just one of my <laughs> my favorites, just like the way that that starts, um, who is in kind of a bad place. He's in his 40s. His wife has recently divorced him. And he's, you know, I mean, like the book doesn't use the word depression, but he's clearly like really dep- depressed and not doing well. He's a small business owner. He owns his own little taxidermy shop that was his dad's. And... Um, yeah, you know, some stuff happens and he eventually gets invited to do this uh uh like medical study. And the medical study involves him, you know, getting these brain implants and like brain downloads of of mostly the humanities. He gets a bunch of like, <laughs> you know, like philosophy and like literary theory and other sorts of brain downloads. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, in this part because it starts out with the Oxford English Dictionary and Roger's <laughs> Theosaurus. So you see this sudden t- switch in the language and the way in which he's communicating and the way in which he's thinking about the world around him. And it's somewhat jarring uh, early on, especially after the Roger Theosaurus download, because now he's using these this highfalutin polysyllabic diction that was very different from the Romy Futch of just a chapter before. And I think that these downloads um, really do a good job of contextualizing the book in the landscape where it sits uh, in terms of literary traditions. So there's a lot of mythology, like Bullfinch's mythology. And he speaks frequently about Greek mythology and Greek mythological figures. Um, And then I think that it's really interesting as he progresses through these literary traditions of the classical... um, classical and renaissance literature to moving through the modernist oh you know what i've got i've got a passage underlined can i just quote it yeah i know feel free to read please we do we do a lot of that and matt usually does it so i'm very glad that you <laughs> are going to because i'm not very good at it so to describe the way in which this the books and literature is forming his thought processes kind of mirrors the way in which these sort of literary traditions also form the American consciousness and the intellectual consciousness. So he's describing the bait downloads 
By week three, we'd worked our way through classical antiquity, the Middle Ages, the whole kit and caboodle of European renaissances, Reformation, Enlightenment, yada yada, zippity doo da, zipping up to the 19th century to the false climax of high modernism, where, right after we got our bearings, our minds were promptly blown with all the posts, modernism, structuralism, humanism, colonialism. Thereupon, our t- Babel towers began to buzz with cacophonous tongues, mortar crumbling, brick chunks hurtling miles downward, from heights beyond the stratosphere. The whole concept of a tower of progress is always undermined by its own aporia. And that night we were reeling. Yep. Yeah, no, that's that's a <laughs> that's a great summation of sort of what the downloads are like for him and the other sort of, you know, there's this kind of interesting element of the this part of the book where they are institutionalized, even though it's not quite a prison, but a lot of the folks who are there have previously been in prison. Everyone's there because they're a little bit hard up. I mean, you know, the the the, the thing I want to tie to, the downloads are called BAIT, you know, uh, B-A-I-T, and it stands for something, biological something, I don't remember. But it's biological also like... Biological Artificial Intelligence Transmissions. Right. But like, it's also clearly meant to to like be bait for them. It's like, it's like, oh, hey, we'll make you smart and pay you some money, but like then you'll be in our system forever as we get to see kind of later on in the book. Like they continue using them as subjects even after they've left this system. Um, and so I kind of like that, that, you, you know, it's this thing I didn't realize the first read around, but the second read around was like, oh yeah, bait actually has a specific meaning here. And in this read round, I thought that it was really interesting because this this book is structured into three sections. And in the first section, you get the sense that it is flowers for Algernon. He's getting these brain downloads. But you also have the more sinister applications of this psychological experiment that definitely wouldn't pass APA guidelines. But they are they describe how they've like structured these groups into three categories, three segments of learner types, the bait downloads crew, the and then the slow learners is what they as they call the other groups. And those are people that are either being taught in sort of online sessions or people that have a just didact or somewhat I, okay, group one is they're given access to a whole bunch of literature um, and they don't have any formal instruction. Group two has teachers and there's a real tension, sort of that Zambino prison experiment, Zimbardo prison experiment, where there's real tension between these like disgruntled Emory English major college graduates and then these people that came in for this study to make just to earn some quick bucks hard up on their life and then they're sitting in a room being like preached at and then finally the bait download crew and they've got a sense of superiority over the other groups and there's some real tension in there which also kind of mirrors this like prison institutional system where people create these in groups and out groups and categorize themselves and interact with each other in different ways based off of these sort of preconceived um, identities that they both adhere to and then sort of really push forward, push on um, just to give themselves a sense of establishment. Right, right. And we, we get to see all of this like play out like in real time in, in the first section until eventually and it kind of plays out, you know, the 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 folks who are going through the bait downloads also eventually realize like the bait downloads are not good for them. It's like fucking with their heads a little bit. And it's, you know, a couple of them suffer severe consequences because of it and are, you know, summarily just rejected from the study with no with no help from the from the folks studying them. And so there's eventually kind of a 
a bit of a like mini climax to this chapter where they all have to choose whether to finish out the downloads or not, and uh, Romy as well as most of the others do so that they can get their their check at the end of the day. And um, Romy chooses to get his bait download in 3D art, <laughs> so sculpture and whatnot, which obviously fits with the taxidermy really well. And um, then he's sent on his way and uh, he goes back home and there's this very clear, you know, kind of split in, in chapter two. We begin and he's, you know, doing yoga and drinking kombucha and like, you know, like actually like doing the work that he needs to for a small business and also working on his own art projects on the side and things are going very well for him. And um, you get to kind of see over time he, uh, you know, the main I would say like arc of this part is like him learning about these genetically modified animals running around the woods, starting to hunt them for like these dioramas, these taxidermy diorama art that he wants to make. And then learning about Hogzilla, which is the kind of, um, you know, the white whale Moby Dick of the of this section of the this section of the book really kind of like tracks with Moby Dick kind of well, because he learns about this. um this giant genetically modified hog that weighs like thousands of pounds and has wings on its back. And, you know, it's like literally a when pigs fly situation. Um, and he, he, you know, hunts that and in getting so obsessed with that, but also in kind of in going back to the small town life, he slides back into his alcoholism and into his drugs. It's kind of like this, these bait downloads, like change him for a little while for the better. And over time though, he loses a lot of what he's been given from them in terms of like his own self-discipline and that kind of thing. And I, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit later with the like education and class piece. Um, you know, because it's also the things that the bait downloads do is alienate him from his like former friends, like these people who he used to know and hang out with all of a sudden it's like he sees them in a very different light because he has this kind of knowledge that they don't and way of looking at the world that they don't. Um, yeah, and so, you know, it kind of ends with him, like, backing Hogzilla <laughs> towards the end in a, in a, you know, kind of a climax where, like, he and one of his old friends and this old homeless guy who has a lot of local lore are, like, stuck, like, with the, the pig trying to break down the tree that they're all stuck in over several days. And he finally figures out the, like, weak spot on Hogzilla and kills it and, um, you know, works out a way to turn it into this taxidermy art which I think was was a lot of fun, like him wanting to, you know, like the reason he's hunting it is not just to kill it, but to like display its flesh <laughs> like as art. Um, and, you know, I also think there's a way in which, you know, his hunting the pig is also like we, we learned through this section that the pig is uh, – so the like the holding company kind of at the very top that like owned the research lab that was doing research on him also owns this other research lab which created Hogzilla amongst many of the other um thing of what Biofutures Incorporated, like amongst the other uh youth uh genetically modified animals. Um and I, you know, I thought it was really interesting that Romy decides, like, go so full, full hog on trying to kill this pig. Um, because it was a little bit of like, you know, this pig represents this like symptom of these kind of larger structural problems. And I think as is often true, you know, he is able to fight back against a particular symptom and like understand a particular symptom, but the larger structural problem of like biofutures incorporated is, you know, always there in the background. It's never, he's never actually able to fight back against that in particular, no matter what he does, which was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And then, so the kind of final piece is, you know, he bags the hog, 
make some artwork out of it and and starts having this kind of like final like I guess de, denouement of like building out the artwork and like things going really well for him towards the end of the book and um, he and Trippy J and a few of the other guys from the um, bait downloads eventually fight back against the people who have been like like the the original Dr. Morrow and his men his henchmen <laughs> have been um continuing to monitor their sleep and monitor you know them and even like control them to a degree and so they go in and they like break all their equipment and then um the very end Romy gets recruited into a an almost like a you know it's unclear if it's a terrorist cell or what it is but like a group of people fighting back against biofutures incorporated and kind of rides off into the sunset with them in a in a somewhat ambiguous ending yeah, it was somewhat of a happy ending, but also had a sense of ambiguity. Uh, there's like this this idea that he's going to continue with sort of subversive vigilantism against this institution. But again, uh, as we're thinking back about some of the undercurring themes that Adrian discussed of the idea of policing oneself, uh, fighting against the pig, if you will, uh, is both this internal monster and this internal monstrosity of manipulation, uh, but also a systematic discipline. So there's a sense of futility in that because even even if he is able to, they're still going to come back. They're still going to have power. And this contract research organization, its arms extend into many, many different facets. And you don't you it's kind of just this ambiguous big bad that mm -hmm. was somewhat personal somewhat captured in the Dr. Moreau character. I, I keep thinking of like the island of Dr. Moreau, which right. I think was probably intentional on her part for sure. Right. Well, they, he even mentions the island of Dr. Moreau at, at one point, And it's I think it's a pretty clear callback to that. <laughs> it's, again, a book I haven't read, unfortunately. So I don't know the the ways in which it does. So, um, yeah, at this point, you know, what we would normally do is kind of talk through some of the different themes of the book that really resonated for us. Um, you know, I think maybe the place to start out before we hit the education and class stuff is in the kind of ways that masculinity and femininity are, you know, and gender just generally are displayed in this book um you know obviously like we've talked about julia elliott the author is a gender study professor and has clearly thought about this stuff and whether it's you know purposeful or not written it into the book um but i i, I don't know there's like a lot there i mean one of the interesting things about the book is that it's written in the first person perspective of romy futch and like you mentioned over the course of the book the language really changes it goes from being this kind of like you know very simple and straightforward and short sentences in the first couple of chapters with you know very kind of weak vocabulary to to this you know very like highfalutin kind of speech towards the middle especially as he's getting the like last of the bait downloads and then i i would say it kind of smooths out a little bit through the second part of the book it kind of like finds a, a middle ground between that kind of like over the top purple prose and the like you know you know overly simplistic kind of Hemingway style beginning and and kind of like fits into this middle ground which I think uh is interesting because I think it's also showing like the text uh, reflects Romy's own kind of psychological perspective through the books especially as he's reconciling himself with this knowledge. And so I, mm -hmm. as you're reading about the bait crew in the, the in uh, the room, it's sort of like these really eager undergraduates who have finally <laughs> been exposed to this con 
10 and they're coming back home and they're just like there's a disjunct with their that existing life as well as um, who they are. And there's this sort of need to prove himself Mm -hmm. um, to himself. And he's really proud of this language. And so when he breaks character as Lord Tusky in one portion of it, (laughs) it's because he's correcting someone for uh, their their language around, I think it was Kafka's The Trial and around Kafka's background. And it, no, it I, think it was, like, I think it was The the Fly, right? Because it was, it was oh, him. Oh, yes, it was The like, Beetle. Yeah, right. At least like, no, he changed into a beetle, not a fly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just had to correct someone, which is, yeah, I think, actually, why don't we talk about education first? Because I feel like there's a whole lot here and I'm going to keep like beating around the bush if we, if we don't <laughs> dive right into it. Because, um, yeah, I think like you were saying, like the bait, you know, I mean, there's this clear thing that's going on where, like, the bait downloads are being used to make literal, like, in a science fictional kind of sense, what happens when someone from a small rural town goes and gets a college education as, like, the first person in his family <laughs> to have done that, for for instance. I don't know who I could be talking about. <laughs> who? Who <laughs> yeah. might that be, Adrian? Just, like, as a random example. <laughs> um And, you know, for me like that, you know, I'll talk about kind of like the personal aspect of it for a minute. They were like, it definitely education is really used as a way of like being a gatekeeper between the different socioeconomic classes in America. Like getting into a school like, you know, Yale to pick one randomly again is. um, Where did that come from? You know, it's in movies and stuff. People people watch. Um, That's definitely, you know. The kind of thing that is, at least in theory and to a degree in practice, like the kind of thing that can make you go from being like poor and in poverty to no longer being, you know, it offers, you know, a lot of opportunities through networking, through the education itself, you know, through just like the opportunities that are available there that aren't available to other people to really kind of like there's an easy kind of like knowable path from like one thing to another. And, you know, in particular to kind of like enter into this like upper class kind of portion of America. I mean, I'm not rich by any means, but I also know a million rich people, (laughs) you know, like both people with old money and new money. And it's, you know, this kind of interesting thing of like, you know, I think part of what Yale in particular, and I'm sure other colleges are, you know, elite colleges are trying to do is kind of like instill this sort of um, culture in people, you know, and, and, and initiate the uninitiated into that culture. Um, you know, it's like helping, helping poor kids from Alaska understand how to, you know, like talk to a bunch of different people and how to network and and do all of that stuff just as much as it is about like learning any particular skill or knowledge or information or, or whatnot. Um, and, you know, I think that the, this book does a, a kind of good job though, of breaking down some of the myths and inherent in that, where it's like, You know, I think there's this hard way in which going to a school like that or having these brain downloads, you know, also they don't fully take you out of of your upbringing. They don't fully actually like initiate you. You know, the the promises are overblown (laughs) a little bit for this. And, you know, it's like and I think that's one of the things this book is doing is deconstructing a little bit that idea of like, oh, if just you were smarter, you'd be happier. You know, it's like, sure. He's able to do yoga and do some stuff early on, but he also like slides back into his old habits really quickly. Yeah, I think that it sort of mirrored um, recently having read uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, where the character experiences this similar trajectory. And I think that the Hillbilly Elegy does, uh, in a little bit more detail than what Romy Futch does, uh, 
talk about the psychological impact of this rapid ascension through social mobility and how that trying to figure out identity within this space of understanding who you were and who you are and not being sure of where you necessarily fit. And so there's this kind of sense of loneliness. So he's given access and he's given opportunity. And it's both sort of, but he's not given the tilt, the tools or the skills um, needed in order to actually implement that. So they give him these downloads, but then they put him back in this really destructive habitat uh, just to operate in his new, in like with this new information. And it's, it's, yeah, the, the ethics of the research, I mean, obviously it's an evil corporation. <laughs> right, but, right. It's almost uh, like a little bit cliched evil corporation. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think that it's kind of it's interesting to think about how education really impacts the way that we think because it's not they aren't making him smarter, they're just increasing and developing certain like they're adding they described in one portion how they're seeing new activity in various regions of his brain. So there are increasing his ability to think about situations, but they are not helping him relate and understand. And like, it just happens so quickly, more so than what happened in Hillbilly Elegy. But but, I mean, obviously, because this is like science fiction. fiction. (laughs) Um, So you get to see that, like that discrepancy really quickly. I think there's this interesting piece of this where, like you said, he's not, he's given this sort of like new information, but also not given necessarily the skills for how to use that in his old context. But also at the same time, and this is something that I know I've experienced in other friends of mine from Yale who who came from like small towns, Oklahoma, you know, Alaska, wherever, where it also though kind of like fucks us up for like working back in the old context. Like, like I, I think about it of like, you know, I went to, I always felt kind of alienated from the small rural Alaskan town I grew up in. I never felt like I really belonged there as a kid. And then I, you know, went to Yale and I was thinking like when I did like, oh, great, I will be able to, you know, like I'll be able to both live in this like world of Yale and also in the world of Alaska and I'll get better at doing both. Like the more experiences I have, the better I'll get at both of them. But, you know, it's like I go back to Alaska and it's like, oh, shit, I'm actually like worse at this now. (laughs) Like, I, you know, it's like learning all of this stuff is like also making it like even harder to interact and like feel a part of this kind of small town that I grew up in. I I didn't know it was possible to feel more alienated than I already did, but it's actually like I was like here and there's this scale goes like way far in the other direction and I think Romy Futch feels a little bit of that you know like I I like the way that it showed him you know not wanting to hang out with his friends when he does he has a hard time not judging them and not looking at them from with kind of these new eyes and like it you know it makes it really hard for him to actually relate with them because he's like you know his brain's doing this thing over here and like they're doing the same thing they always have and like his brain is like I don't like that (laughs) you know it's like has a hard time actually engaging with those things. But he does also enjoy it and he craves it. And so it mm-hmm. makes him, it really alienates him and makes him feel sort of lost and yeah. untethered. Even like more alone and more lost than he was previously. Yeah. I think that the characters that he's working with are, are okay, let's, let's, maybe we could talk about, I guess, I don't know, the idea of masculinity for these characters. So yeah, definitely. maybe you could describe like Chip and. Yeah. So anyway, it's Chip and Lee, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are his friends and they're, um, 
actually, to go back to this point that you made that I did want to highlight again, too, is, is that the downloads don't actually make him smarter. Like that, that all the all the potential was there already, and I think that's also a very clear uh, thing to point out about you know, again going to a school like Yale doesn't make you smarter. And I think a lot of the people who go through that experience like have this kind of feeling of superiority and feeling of like oh like I must be smarter than other people because I went through this thing, even though like the truth is like no, you were just as smart. Like it's given you new tools and new information, but it hasn't like changed your brain actually. You know, the same way these downloads like they give him new knowledge, but they don't actually change his brain. And you know, I think that's kind of this important piece of like but that's like a, still enough to feel that alienation from his friends. And, you know, his friends are Chip and Lee and they are, you know, one is kind of one like sells ATVs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, what, like four wheelers. I don't know what the other one does, but they're, you know, there's a lot of just like drugs and alcohol. I, I would say is like kind of the perception of them. Like these guys really like to hang out and like smoke a lot of pot and shoot off their guns in the backyard and drink a lot of whiskey and, you know, kind of like generally be like ne'er do wells <laughs> and you know kind of like and i think it's this thing that's true of um you know small towns like there's not a lot of shit to do you kind of got to make your own fun and oftentimes that own fun comes in the guise of like drugs and shooting things <laughs> it's like entertainment can be hard to come by um but i think to your to the your point too is they're very like very masculine men, you know, this kind of like, like masculine in the way that society wants you to be masculine, you know, a lot of like talking about women, but not really being able to do anything about it. And a lot of, you know, again, even, even the like drugs and shooting the guns and kind of all this sort of stuff that like plays into these kind of, you know, like, I think at one point they go to like, it's not NASCAR, but it's like an ATV race, <laughs> you know, and it's like very much the, like, you know, the, the language used to describe it as of like the smell of like the diesel fuel and the oil and the exhaust and they're you know going through these you know like the the you know boys are on the bikes and the girls are cheerleading them and it's this very kind of like you know like nuclear family you know kind of like binary type of uh you know gender <laughs> very forms. very heteronormative yeah, exactly <laughs> that's the word i'm looking for and that's especially reinforced by the the religious element so this atv uh mm -hmm. show is put forth in this competition is put forth by this baptist church down south and so they're they're talking about the hoops and leaps of these ten commandments that you're going through <laughs> and these sort of marital nuclear family structures are something that are very highly valued. And so the man still has to uphold this like breadwinner role, whereas the female is the procreator. Right. I, I the, you know, I, especially the first time I read the book, I mean, on, I reread, I love that scene too, but it was such a surprise the first time I read the book. And it's definitely like, like I went to those kind of things as a kid, you know, maybe, maybe not to the like, you know, there's a lot about this book that is like, takes a thing and just like ratchets it to 11, like really gives it this almost like surreal heightened sense of like, like hyper real, I'd say mm -hmm. rather than surreal. And I definitely felt that at that scene of like, oh yeah, that this is definitely a combination of like the youth groups and the like, you know, uh, it was usually dirt bikes. My friends did dirt bikes. So I'd go like watch them do that. And, you know, just like, oh yeah, th these things are so the same or like, you know, my, I remember my mom taking me to like a, a, a NASCAR, like box car races at one point too. And it's like, yeah, there's these, these things of like, you know, 
a bunch of people in pews being told like how to behave and how to do. And it's like the difference between, you know, like race cars and church are like not all that different. And so to see them combined there in the same <laughs> context gives you that sense of like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's very much how like this plays out in reality in these kind of two different spaces. That's that's honestly just, you know, I, I mean, I love this book and I, I, I hopefully that comes through. But one of the things I do really love about the book is the way that she's able to to do this hyper real thing of like, you know, sh like like taking a real thing and just like cranking on it until it's like just barely recognizable, but almost like more recognizable because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's sort of an uncanny element to some of these these experiences. It's it's natural and the characters are are fascinating, um, both like caricatures, but also sympathetic and the anti-hero of Romy Futch in particular is very, very much relatable because you you sort of understand his drives, you understand his feelings, you understand his his just desire for like the hierarchical needs of belonging. And here he is just trying to figure out his way. He wants to find love. He wants to have <laughs> shelter. Like he wants to be able to pay his bills. Um, but he also sort of craves these like primal desires of escape and mm -hmm. escape the only ways in which he's able to really achieve that in many ways is through drugs and alcohol because he is very limited by his situation and his financial situation in particular. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a whole lot to talk about in terms of like sort of like the, you know, like even even Chip, who's the character who sells the ATVs and is clearly like more well to do than his friends. It's like everyone kind of exists in this sort of like haze of like either immediate or like on the future financial instability. Mm -hmm. I mean, Romy Futch at one point mentions to him, it's like, sure, you're doing well now because you're selling all these ATVs, but eventually like every kid in the church group is going to have bought one. And then what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. I mean, like at a certain point, it's like, you know, it's like money is kind of finite and it is a little bit of a zero sum game that everyone is playing. And it's, you know, it's not simply a matter, you know, Romy Futch can take personal responsibility and like, you know, do better marketing and, you know, like send out coupon codes and like do better than he was at his taxidermy business. But even at the best, he still doesn't have health insurance. When he, you know, when Hogzilla like nips his finger, he has to like sew it up himself and eventually gets bone rot and needs the whole thing chopped off. And, you know, that's like a, you know, I mean, I, I grew up as a kid without health insurance and, and you know, I, I saw my dad go through like multiple situations where it's like, oh, like something that like is bad, but could, could have gotten taken care of, like he couldn't. So it got worse and worse and worse. And you kind of have to wait to the very last minute to do it. And then, you know, then it's like, oh the you know family needs to come together and like be able to pay for his back surgery or pay for his like neck or like whatever it is you know and it's it's not something that you know and, and it's this weird thing where you can't ask them when it would be like a small thing <laughs> it's not until it becomes an emergency that you can you know whether it's like now with like GoFundMe or you know back then with like talking to his like you know uncles and stuff it's still the same kind of problem of there isn't a social safety net and there isn't kind of like a togetherness of society where like everyone's working together towards something. Um, to, to go a little bit off track, I, I, a couple, a year ago, I read this book called Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich. Have you heard of this, Britt? Mm -mm. It's really cool. It's about, um, 
it's about the last kind of like 20 years of the Soviet Union and like the kind of like first five years after its fall. So it's about kind of like the like end times of the Soviet Union and the people who grew up like having never known anything but the Soviet culture and then had to like learn how to capitalism more or less. And, you know, it's very realistic about like the bad parts of communism. Like it's not an apologia for communism or the Soviet rule in any any way, shape or form. But there's also... Everyone who talks about the Soviet times, no matter how much they hated it, no matter how much it screwed them over, no matter how much they went to the gulags or whatever, there's this thing they keep saying, which is like, well, the one thing about it is we were all together. We were all Soviets. We all like worked together, loved each other. Like we're, you know, like we, we were uh, comrades, <laughs> you know, and it's like, that was true. And, and you know, I, I, I always, when I read stuff about this and the kind of like hyper individual individuality and individualism of American society. I always think back to that as, you know, I'm like, well, clearly the gulags were bad. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly the like supreme leader thing is not a good thing, but there's also something to be said for, you know, a place where if you get hurt, you can go get that fixed. And where, you know, if you need something like literally everyone is your brother and sister. And like, you know, there's something like to that society that I, that I always wonder like, Oh, like, you know, we clearly have the opposite of that. And, I, you know, there's a lot not healthy about that society. I don't want to, like, sound like a tanky here, you know, like <laughs> like defending communism. But I also like how there's something about that that's really appealing and that it feels like we, you know, kind of go too far in the other direction from sometimes. And, and you know, just the just the way he's alienated from his friends, the way that, like, you know, even even his friends with the bait downloads, like after they get out, they all kind of leave and they barely see each other again and there's still this like extreme distrust and and just this sense of you know they're all men and you know going to this masculinity thing they feel that they can't rely on other people you know like asking help is not allowed and like saying i'm in a bad place is not allowed especially with other men you know what they all almost all of them do is like trippy goes to live with his sister uh, the other guy whose name I'm blanking on, he goes to live with this like girl he's falling in love with, you know, like Romy goes and lives alone and tries to, you know, both, both tries to get his ex-wife back and also is like talking to like a woman on the like hog hunting forums. And, you know, it's all about kind of this thing of like, oh, well, I can't go back to my friends and tell them about this. I can't go back to my friends and relate to them or ask them for help or have any sort of like, you know, homosocial contact with them. It has to be like, oh, I have to find a woman and she has to be that support for me. Um, you know, and so, so maybe kind of going into the masculinity of the, the whole thing from that direction is like, you know, I feel like a lot of this alienation comes from the culture and the class perspective, but also just comes from the inherent alienation of like modern American masculinity, (laughs) like gender is a prison and we all have to live inside (laughs) of it. <laughs> yeah, Judith Butler's gender trouble definitely speaks different volumes with under the current administration. Mm-hmm. And I think that this idea of the economy being somewhat in a sense of on the cusp of instability, like it's strong and sort of bullish right now, but there's that like fear in the back pocket of most American citizens where they there's still like this idea of protection of self above others. Um, And that creates this kind of lack of the camaraderie, the lack of support structures, the lack of universal health care. I mean, sorry, I'm waving my liberal flag here, but. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty safe space for that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Cool. Well, I I'm I'm I I noticed too that I've been like talking way more than you have. So I actually want to give you a chance to to talk about some of these issues because you know I, I I was particularly interested in your take on the masculinity of this because I you know I can I can understand from it the like masculine experience and this experience of you know kind of like coming at it and being like oh yeah it's hard to ask my male friends for help and it's hard to you know do all this stuff but I you know one thing that you mentioned was um that I hadn't thought of and I felt embarrassed kind of when you mentioned it is the depiction of women in Romy Futch which is particular (laughs) you know there's 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 do you want to talk about that a little bit sure yeah I mean it's it's difficult as a cis female for me to speak about the male experience, but uh, I was very, very, I found the depictions of the men in here as being these beer guzzling, uh, hyper manly characters. found that interesting um, because that seems you, I guess, being living in New York City and living in Brooklyn now, uh, you, you feel that we've come to a more progressive ideology of what sort of gender roles are, but that's not true in the rest <laughs> of the world. Um, I would even argue here a lot of that is like kind of like facade. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I So, I mean, though I can't really speak to the masculine element, I did find it striking the way in which men were depicted here. But it was more to me where I found where I was somewhat unsettled was how the women were not just portrayed, knowing that this is a female author as well, a female author and mother, um, describing women in this way, it creates this idea, maybe this is how sort of she internalizes the perceptions and the male gaze of others onto Mm -hmm. her and onto society. But there's so much judgment about these expectations of women and the female body in particular. So I could start out with a quote from... um, where he's describing, so Romy's describing one of his on and off hookups, uh, Crystal Fleming. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, here, I'll just, I'll read it and you can get this portrayal in your head. It says, she smoked Marlboro Reds, guzzled gin like it was Dasani, dipped generously into God knows what kind of pharmaceutical helpers, but somehow looked half decent. Haggard, yes, with crow's feet and lines around her mouth, but her lips were still luscious, her eyes big and dreamy and shiny as crystals. She could still rock a pair of jeans from the junior's department, despite her muffin top and bubble butt, an inch of two south where it used to be. So and then he says sort of self-effacingly and self-aware, I know I sound like an actual uh, I know I sound like a sexist asked, but even still, that's not he's not countering these thoughts or he's not challenging it. And the other women in this book are similarly depicted very much by these like superficial qualities before any of their kind of human psychological uh, or any of the other kind of mechanisms and philosophies that may make them individuals. Uh, It's about this outward appearance first and foremost. It's how they look. He's got these archetypes in his mind of this ideal Amazon warrior uh, princess (laughs) of this hog hog slayer, pig slayer um, on the forum. And he just, when he thinks about his wife or his ex-wife, Helen, it's always through the lens of how beautiful and how sexy she was when she was in high school, when they started dating. And then he makes these comparisons to her as she's getting older, as she's trying to procreate and describing like what some of the fertility treatments do to her physically um, and not about like what they do to her emotionally. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's probably worth just talking about the fertility treatment section generally. You know, one thing that's kind of interesting is I don't know whether this is 
like I would be a little bit hesitant to say that this is any of this is Julia Elliott like making statements as opposed to her like being really aware of how men look at women. Like I, the way I read it was kind of like, you know, it's it's from Romy's like first person perspective. The book is, and so the way I read it was as her kind of like showing like this is what men think, and it's really like a book kind of like written from the perspective of a man and like. You know, both the ways in which that's sympathetic and the ways in which it's not, like, deeply not. And I think, you know, as you pointed out, like, he, like, there's this long section of the book that describes, like, the fertility treatments that she goes through and, you know, kind of their, I think, sort of final alienation from each other, like, is going through these fertility treatments and the ways in which, like, she needs him to, like, be an emotional support for her through it. And he, like, can't be he's not and he can't be and he doesn't know how to be and doesn't even know like that's what's expected of him (laughs) to a degree it's like really deep um yeah I mean like so much of what he is like looking for from her is like being this like woman to him like this like society's idea of a woman Mm -hmm. of like being being hot and being able to have kids and being able to you know like support him in these ways like he's going to be the business winner and she's going to you know support him in all of these things and I, I do think that they have a connection. They had a connection for sure. And it seems like they understood each other and cared about each other deeply. It's just there is the lack of communication or lack of like mutual understanding as they were growing apart and trying to sort of deal with issues that were coming up. They seem to really support each other through their parents' deaths, for instance. Mm. Um, when So it describes how Helen's dad committed suicide and how he was there for her. And then as um, Romy's mother died of dementia, uh, Helen was like really supportive of him. But it's when they made this switch to these fertility treatments. And this section is explored in detail during the time where he is recovering from um, – or there, it's this section is explored when he's both in like septic shock and feverish because he just had his finger chomped off by Hogzilla. Um, and so he's sort of flickering in and out of consciousness and remembering like the really bad times of their relationship. And so he's reflecting on a lot of these elements and uh and describing in detail. Oh, and I think he's he's sort of he's spiraling into drugs and alcohol uh, during this period, and he's spending right. a lot of he's time been given the opioids and stuff. Yeah, and he's spending a lot of time like looking at porn sites, and yeah, just pretty dark. And that takes him back to this idea of Helen, both as the ideal woman, but also acknowledging her imperfection. So he still craves her, and he still wants her, but um, he wants the younger version of her before these responsibilities came. Right. Well, and he wants the, you know, idealistic, like idealized version of her. He wants the her without actually like her having to be a person mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. I think it's also interesting to to compare and contrast like the, the way he talks about the fertility treatments and all of that and the way that he, even at the end of the book, I mean, there's this element of like Helen eventually gets pregnant. Right. And like from Romy's perspective, you know, she like has this boyfriend whose name is Boykins, which is like amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Given given like he's this like a kind of older like lawyer type, but his name is like literally like boy and then a diminutive. (laughs) Um, But he's uh, 
you know, Romy is obsessed with this kind of fantasy that the child is not Boykin's, that it's either Romy's or it's Chip's or it's like Boykin's cousins, Adam's, you know, that it's like anyone but his. And, you know, going through the reread, like I, I had remembered from the first time reading the book of like, oh, yeah, it definitely wasn't his. Like, you know, like Romy's definitely correct there. And like on reread, I realized no, this is like complete fantasy. I mean, like, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's not, but like he has no evidence whatsoever except for his own insecurity, mm-hmm. right? Like this is like pure fantasy on his part and the feeling that, you know, in like leaving her, she cuckolded him as his idea and thus like she must be cuckolding like everyone. You know, mm-hmm. that's like no- nothing that she does can be sincere. And, you know, it's this kind of really like, sad view of her like she's finally happy and like getting the things that she wanted and she's in a place where like she can be supported emotionally by you know and and you know and like monetarily and everything but like really I think the one thing that Boykins does is actually like supports her emotionally in a way that Romy clearly never did and like he just can't accept that like he just you know like none of the stuff that he learns through this does he ever have the idea of like oh maybe Helen's actually happier with him and maybe the you know baby is his and maybe it's because you know so to some degree because she's happier well i mean aspects that, like the amount of stress and the lack of attention that he was paying like he, to her during these times where she was really pushing through a lot of this like uh in particular, like there was a scene where there it was a rather graphic sex scene where he was describing how he had just been hanging out with um, Chip and she's been taking these pills and she's been like injecting shots and she's drinking fertility and is doing all of these things because she so desperately wants this. And then the one window where she's finally like ready um he gives this like garish depiction of her where he is high as a kite um, and isn't able to like perform. And then even in the scene where they were going in for the final treatment and he's in the room, um, cockpit, as they called it, uh, trying to s- save some of this so it could be injected in her for a final fertility treatment. And he's not even thinking about her. In fact, when he does start to think about her, um, he gets distracted and has to sort of stop and restart the tape. And it's only when he's thinking about it is taco loco waitress um, <laughs> that he's able to finally perform and finish. But I think that there's there's so much stress and they get in a fight in the car on the way back. And these sort of stressful scenarios make it make it clear that it really would have been a pretty difficult situation for her to have that. Like have, a, have a child with him. Yeah, yeah. he's definitely... But it's interesting to note, like that his um, that in the end he was the one who was infertile, because oftentimes it's the or potentially infertile, because um, often the woman takes the brunt of the blame. The woman is the one who's responsible for taking all of these treatments and doing all of these sort of proactive measures in order to make it happen, and the guy is expected to just turn up and perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that a woman who is in that situation would probably be much more self like be in doubt so i don't know but whether or not she's happy with boykin that's i i struggle to say that because she's flirting with other guys granted this is through romy's lens Mm. and he wants to see the worst of her next to boykin um in contrast to that um and it just plays up his insecurities but knowing that she did sleep with chip and that kind of speaks to like this potential of it's all's not well in Denmark. 
that's you know that's that's definitely true that's definitely fair um i thought it was particularly interesting that <clears throat> like when they're both getting fertility tested initially romy and she both test like you know like that they're okay like they should be both good to go and they're kind of doctors don't know what's going on and when you know helen gets those test results in like they're both a little bit like oh okay well hmm i wonder what's going on there whereas when romy gets his tests in he's like oh good i'm 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 okay so it's not my fault you know and it's like it's the same test results for both of them but like you know his perception of them is like oh i can't impugn my own you know virility at all it can't possibly be my fault so the test came in positive so i'm okay whereas the test come in positive for her and it's like oh well, i guess we don't know what's going on mm-hmm. you know and that kind of like you know, double standard that the book doesn't actually call out, but I think it is kind of trying to present <laughs> like show like, no, look at, look at this. It's very different. Yeah. In terms of like what else we wanted to talk about, did you like it? Like what, you know, like kind of just from a personal perspective, like what did you like about the book? What did you not like about it on reread? I mean, it's just fun. It's a delightful text. It's really very readable, very digestible, but it also has these notes of like concepts and theories that I don't tend to think about or discuss, but was that we I studied in undergrad. I liked the book a lot. I found it really funny and charming and uh, poignant and had a level of satire, but also realism um, and an experience that is very unlike anything that I would have had or been exposed to. Um, in Colorado and then in New York, it's it's the rural South is a different different beast, and it's very very much American in some ways. Um, and I think that yeah, there are just so many theories like it's discussion of race, it's discussion of alcoholism and um, addiction. I think I found that that sort of portrayal of addiction in this book was really really fascinating and tragic. Um, the character evolutions as they're going through and experiencing these sort of phenomena, uh, the the homages to Moby Dick uh, hunting this white whale of a character who's just sort of ambiguously floating around the sea. And he <laughs> speaks often about his Ahab-like quest and determination uh, against this this beast and using not harpoons, but lances later on. It's there are definitely some really strong parallels in there. And then I think that it's ideas about, I was also really kind of captivated by its institutionalization and its depiction of institutionalization and what that does to a person, whether it's in a public school or whether it's in a prison or whether it's in a menstrual institution or clinic as a scientific experiment, what that does to one individuality yeah i don't know i i go back with with the institution and with everything and the ways in which this book kind of thinks about systems and kind of presents systems where like you know it's not until the very end that romy is given the you know he's able to fight back by inside of the prison you know like punching dr Murray. i guess he doesn't someone else does right but like they're able to fight back in this very kind of like 
basic and personal and kind of violent way. And Romy's able to like kill Hogzilla, which is this, you know, kind of like manifestation of Biofutures Incorporated is a sort of, you know, like physical presence that's like hurt, hurting people. You know, it very much is this like, you know, this corporation, the system that doesn't care about us and doesn't have a name, doesn't even have faces or people or whatever associated with it, just this vague thing. Um, one of its experiments has gotten let out and is killing people. And, you know, like they describe at one point at like ripping the arm off of like a little league player, you know, it's like it's hurting actual human beings and livestock and everything. And, um, you know, Romy is able to finally like track it down and kill it and all of this. But then like afterwards, like, oh, well, you know, it's just one of many. There's others still out there. And even if he does kill them all, it's like Biofutures is still there doing their experiments. And, you know, maybe it's for the government, maybe it's for Monsanto, like who knows what it's for, but like, it's, you know, like he's not able to actually like fight back against the like causes of any of these, only the symptoms. And I think even to a degree the you know, when we're talking about masculinity and education, I mean, the stuff is true too. It's like, you know, he's able to, to like, like getting an education is like not fighting back against the like causes of class in America. It's simply like buying into them and like <laughs> trying to like rise up through that structure. And, you know, I don't, I don't say, I'm not saying anyone should not try to like exist within the structures that they do. I mean, you do exist within these structures and you have to like be realistic about that, but also, you know, I mean, like there, there's a there's a way that like as fun as the book is and as gonzo and ridiculous. And I mean, like, it's so funny at some that time. And I laughed out loud. And, you know, it's like but it's also it's it's like and there's this ambiguous ending where at the end he kind of goes off with Hog Slayer and these other people who who look like they've created kind of like an anti biofutures resistance of sorts. And there's ways in which this is a happy ending. And there's ways in which I mean, the whole book is kind of like fun and happy. And then there's other ways where you like look at deeper at it at all and don't just look at the way that it's like presenting itself on the surface but what it's really talking about and it's like a pretty sad book in a lot of ways i mean it is a sense of like oh like we all exist within these structures that you know gender is a prison prison is a prison <laughs> medical experiments are a prison and like you know foucault's like the prison guard is inside of you and like you're the prison guard like you're the one policing yourself inside of these larger systems um and all of that is true. And like, he's never able to really escape it. And, you know, it's unclear to the degree to which going off, you know, I think this is one of the ambiguities at the end of the book is not just like, oh, are these people actually like working for the company or working against them? Are they actually terror sell or not? Is also just the sense of like, yeah, like, can they work against it or not? Like, can something like that even be successful? Like, what are the ways in which you can fight against these oppressive systems that, like, exist all around us? And that's, you know, I think that's, like, one of the, like, like questions of, like, our generation politically is, like, can we fight against these systems that we've grown up in and have just, like, ruined the planet, ruined our lives, ruined everything around us, but also, you know, like, <laughs> like how do we fight back against that? Like, what can we, what can we even do? I'm not asking you. I'm not saying like you need to have the answers, Britt. But definitely, <laughs> definitely don't have the answers to that very heady question about how within because we are so much of what we do, even with the um, even the measures that are in place to to try to prevent the tracking of data and these sort of systems that are these surveillance systems that are mm -hmm. constantly watching. Um, all that's happening is that they're just getting more and more intelligent, more savvy. Uh, the ability to monitor um, 
I mean, with the CCTV cameras everywhere or the online platforms, opting out of cookie sharing is not something that one does. It's it's like a second order. It takes an additional level of awareness, an additional step that most people don't think to do. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, companies are benefiting from all of this information. They're becoming more intelligent about ways to manipulate us. And is and it seemed in this one of the way the only way that they were able to truly stop it or actually rebel against it was to get off of the grid, um, mm-hmm. to go out into the wild where the bait receptors weren't able to connect to him for three days time, and so then they were they lost that link. Um, or Trippy went to a place where there was no cell service on an island, and is that the is that how one can protest? Is it retreating to rural Alaska and? disconnecting from society but that definitely consider it sometimes (laughs) land's cheap up there and global warming only makes it a better farming environment yeah and who's to know i mean i don't have an answer for you adrian well it's kind of interesting that um i'm gonna go i'm gonna jump a little bit off the deep end here but um you know i saw i like it's interesting that i i actually don't know julia's age my understanding is she's like kind of on the older end of being a millennial you know i mean it's kind of like we talk about millennials as meaning kids these days but in truth like millennials go up to like like 38 year olds are millennials right now um you know and and i always think about that in terms of like you know and thinking in terms of our generation of like Whenever you see like an article that's like, oh, millennials are killing the napkin industry or millennials, you know, like aren't buying houses or aren't eating out as much or whatever. Like another way to interpret millennials aren't are killing the napkin industry is that like 30 year olds can't afford to buy napkins anymore. Mm -hmm. Like like millennials are not. 22 year olds they're 38 year olds like we can't afford to buy napkins we can't afford to own homes we can't afford to have kids and have child care and you know that that to me is like <laughs> like really kind of depressing and it's like the way in which like you know it's also just like the way in which the system like provides this information to us is this way of like oh you should be judgmental to yourself for like killing this industry as opposed to like hey you can't afford to buy napkins like you can't afford to like do these like basic things that like up until now have just been like a given point of America. You know, the last 50, 60 years, it's just what America is. And no longer, you know, no longer can we as a generation afford to do that. And again, our generation are like, we're all adults now. We're n- none of us are kids. Millennials are not kids anymore. But like we also like have a hard time having our own kids. <laughs> we have a hard time owning our own homes. We have a hard time, you know buying napkins and it's not it's not the it's not the eating out that's doing it because we're also like eating out much less than generations who are older than us do and i think that a part of that a part of the cause of this is because a lot of us have bought into the systems and have borrowed a lot of money to be as well educated and have these opportunities right and well and it's not you know i I, sorry to interrupt but it's not just like we bought into it because like we wanted to it's because like again like education is the class gatekeeper if you don't have a college education then you cannot be middle class and you know except for certain you know exceptional cases and so we have to it's like we have to borrow money in order to like live Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know of course the borrowing money is killing us (laughs) 
Oh. Yeah. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt too there. Too soon. Like... No, it's just too late. So grad school is super. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, I guess I'm lecturing the grad student here about this. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you actually, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this on air, but before we were talking, we were talking about your, like, thesis in grad, like, your grad thesis you're thinking about writing about the, like, ethics of data collection. Would you want to talk about that at all? Because I think it kind of ties into the book a little bit. Like, what you know, what I was saying earlier was that, you know, I think just, like, you know, on the one hand, sure, the brain downloads are education made literal, but they're also this kind of, like, you know data collection made literal like they can literally like watch through these people's eyes and they can control them and you know it's like not being done for necessarily a commercial purpose yet but of course like that's where that <laughs> would eventually go so my thesis um what i'm thinking about doing is around the idea of how adolescents use of technology has changed the way in which they are interacting with each other in the world so through a social psychology lens I I want to write, I think I'll probably just write a paper about the ethics of some of these testing and manipulation practices. I don't know if that will necessarily, I'll have to, I'm going to read into it. It's just, it's very difficult to do that, given that I work at an advertising <laughs> corporation. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think it's, 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 for me, it's interesting the ways in which, you know, Again, it's like it's like talking about the systems perspective of this again. It's like we can, you know, individually, like everyone working in advertising knows the ways in which it can go bad. But that doesn't mean that like the industry is changing <laughs> necessarily. So, yeah, I love the David Foster Wallace quote. Uh, it did what all ads were supposed to do. It created an anxiety relievable by purchase. Yeah, for real, for real. And in that sense, a lot of like these employment things, we're just cogs in a system working towards um, these objectives, which are ultimately to manipulate others into buying more things, spending more money, um, giving up their data and their search for as as they're going through this so that we can sell them more things and sell them more things in a better and more effective way. Right. I thought it was very interesting and like I thought purposeful or I assume purposeful that um Biofutures Incorporated didn't have like a leader. There was no figurehead to like be like to project the evil of it onto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's one thing with like, you know, like I, I work in the tech world and have my entire career. And, you know, one one thing that is getting a lot of play right now is the ways in which people like Zuckerberg or, or Elon Musk or whoever like kind of have like, you know, as much as they're celebrated because they have big PR teams, they also like do really shitty things very frequently. But it's also easy to forget the way that like, OK, well, Clearly, because Zuckerberg is in charge of Facebook, a lot of the like problems of Facebook are like his responsibility to a degree. And I don't want to minimize that at all or say like, oh, he's actually just like the victim here. But because he's not, um, he's, he's a billionaire. He's fine. <laughs> There's no victimhood there. Um, but he also, you know, it's like it's very easy to kind of like blame the problems on like a single individual person in those situations instead of think about it from maybe more of the systems perspective of like, you know, okay, even even if, you know, Jack Dorsey did want to, like, ban all the Nazis on Twitter, for instance, like, if he did that, how would the market respond to it? How how would the board respond to, like, you know, banning potential views for advertisers? You know, like, if banning Nazis were, like, clearly going to harm Twitter's bottom line, 
then he's not legally allowed to do it. And like, that's a problem, <laughs> right? Like, like I view that as a problem, at least that like we have these kind of s- systems set up where, you know, one of the nice thing about a lot of conspiracy theories is they're built in this way where like they, 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 they're scary, but at least someone's in charge. You know, it's like if someone faked the moon landings, well, that means that someone has enough power to fake the moon landings. It means like at least someone is in charge. But like, you know, I think the scary truth is that like maybe no one is. <laughs> like maybe no one can really like fix this stuff, whether, you know, whether it's Obama with hope and change or Trump coming to like drain the swamp, like, you know, regardless of whether either of them meant those things going in and whether they're actually going to try to, like I, I you know, I sometimes wonder if like anyone can actually change the system from inside of it. Probably not. I mean, I think that unless if there is a strong figurehead, change like that would be incredibly difficult to pursue because, I mean, as you look at um, studies around conformity, around cults, uh, what people are more likely to just go along with and push boundaries when they're given that sort of positive reinforcement of others um, participating in the same scenario. So that kind of further begets exploration and Maybe there would be someone who raises their hand. One would hope someone would raise their hand and say, no, let's stop this experiment. Like, let's thinking to um, the shock experiment uh, or even Zimbardo's prison experiment. Uh, These are people who were randomly selected into each into or in the prison experiment. They're randomly selected into these populations. But then they adhere to like these roles and figures and start implementing tactics that further reinforce that group membership. And that I mean, unless if we've got really strict regulation in place and so much of what's occurring and what's happening out there is happening so quickly, these boundaries, it's hard to build regulations around boundaries when you have so many tech disruptions coming in that are building catapults and building sort of twisty, minecrafty buildings <laughs> that just continue to tower around and it's difficult to contain or constrain them within that system. And people are, these like thought leaders, these thought disruptors are going to keep pushing that and then be pressured to continue pushing those boundaries by those around them. Um, Welcome to Spectology, the revolutionary <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's let's think about a specific example from this book. Um, they're talking about these genetically modified uh, animals mm-hmm. that are coming out. Um, that's happening. Right. So I don't know if you've have you read um, Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake or the I Matt have, Adams yeah, series? Yeah. Like this is so evocative of pigoons, mm-hmm. which, as it turns out. Places in China are already creating pigs with organs that can be transplanted into humans using CRISPR gene splicing technology. And so where is... Which is fascinating because, like, that's on the one hand, like, you know, China is also using, like, the Falun Gong dissidents and other dissidents, like, to harvest their, like, human organs and, like, kill them so that, like, regular Chinese people can, like, get organ donations from you know, political dissonance. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, cool. Well, that's like, it seems better that the, like we genetically modify the pigs, but like what costs come with that as well? Like, right. And so that's where, that's where the CRISPR debate gets a little bit sort of sketchy. CRISPR has some really fascinating um, implications and just properties that it can 
they're looking for Alzheimer's treatments, like splicing out aspects of the genome. But they're also in the more science fiction, the near future science fiction, depending on regulation, uh, the idea of, well, I mean, I think in media, the designer babies term is bandied about because that's the most terrifying for people. They, they fear this Gattaca uh, eugenics sort of style of expectations for humans. Um, I'm not I don't see that as a major threat in CRISPR. I think that it'll be regulated before then. But some of these properties, some of the experiments that may be conducted um, definitely not as unethical as those depicted in this book, mm-hmm. uh, which would just like I think the APA would probably set fire to if, <laughs> if they met Dr. Moreau. Right. <laughs> um, but it's it's not as far out of the realm of possibility. Um, no, definitely not. And you know, I, I I honestly don't know a whole lot about how CRISPR actually works or what it's capable of or whatnot but my you know understanding is that it's you know a lot it is science fictional (laughs) like we're getting there really quickly so CRISPR is essentially so it's CRISPR Cas9 is the technique and what it does is it uses this Cas9 they're kind of like scissors that come in and slice the genes and are able to replace it generally with other elements from the genome but Hmm. as they're getting are with or other genetic systems. So it's different from Frankenfood or in the like ag space mm-hmm. um, because it's not pulling together disparate entities. It's generally coming from the same sort of species. Oh, but, interesting. Um, so it's like it can make copies of your genome in different places and kind of like rearrange what exists. And identify problematic areas and then replace them with sort of treatment properties. So when they have something as concrete as, oh, like they treated a girl in the UK with um, blood cancer. Oh, wow. Which that's a very difficult thing to pinpoint. But using CRISPR, they're able to create and intervene. um, So her body was able to correct and... So they can do this for whole organisms, not just single cells. Like they can release this in an entire organism and it will like fix everything exactly that's terrifying yeah well, <laughs> I mean, it's like that's very science fictional yeah um so a lot of i mean it's still it's limited based off of our knowledge and our understanding of the of human genetics which is not very good but it's getting better yeah. now that we have crispr like the two go hand in hand right because we can do experiments now finally and, and, and understand like, each these of these properties affect the phenotype mm-hmm Oh, geez. Isn't that fun? Yeah, it's definitely fun's fun's the word I'm thinking. No, it's, it's, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of scary in some ways, but I think it's exciting for the scientific community. I guess I'm probably pushing the, even, even though we're having this conversation about like the science and the ethics of it, I still get, I'm just fascinated by Mm -hmm. the prospects of these theories and the implementation and the possibilities. It just is so intellectually just curious yeah um and i want to i want to understand and i want to explore but the problem is that if we are given continued free reign without regulation to push these boundaries and continuing to explore and continue to expand the human database of knowledge and knowledge systems that it's not uh it's a very very quick step to get into that playing god uh Mm -hmm. terror yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, like I, you know, I think the 
this stuff is like scary, but also like you can see how there could be ethically positive ramifications for it. I mean, even something like the, you know, the rats with the human eyes on them and the idea of like, oh, could we, you know, like do animal experiments instead of human experiments? Could we, you know, like, like test these things and like make better medicine for people or whatnot? And like on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, that's obviously a, a, a good thing at the end of the day. Like better medicine is good. I, I wouldn't argue that. Um, but also it's like, you know, kind of like at what cost in the meantime, you know, the genetically modified pigs with like human organs. It's like, okay, like, is that, I don't know. I mean, I know obviously, I mean, there are whole like academic fields, like studying the ethics of these kind of things and trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, but it, so there are other people smarter than me doing it. It's just like a very fascinating kind of like, I just think that we're all going to be and the, and the way of this, of course, is always that, you know, it's these like ethical problems that most people are just never actually going to think about and, you know, be responsible for their own ethical choices within the system. Like the system will make the ethical choice for everyone and everyone else will kind of like fall in line within the system because there's no choice at that point. <laughs> like the system gets to make the choice for you. Um, you know, maybe there's the choice to, you know. I mean, like I, I, I have been like vegan and vegetarian at different points during my life. Um, but the truth is that even when I have eaten vegan, like for years at a time, I still exist within a system where like animal death is like a part of that system. And like my eating vegan isn't actually changing that. Like no fewer animals died because I didn't eat meat. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think that that's an important, you know. When, 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 for me, like my ethics are such that, that when we do that kind of thing, like, you know, like me being vegan is not a thing that like should make me feel like better about myself necessarily. Like it shouldn't be this thing of like, oh, where I'm actually morally superior to other people. It's like, no, like other people are in different circumstances. And, you know, my, my, my eating vegan is a choice and a privilege in certain ways. And also, again, it's not actually doing anything. It's not like just eating vegan alone doesn't change the system. You have to do a lot more than that to do it. And, you know, making these kind of so-called ethical choices within these systems it's like okay well sure maybe you would choose not to have like pig organs inside of you but if society is doing it like your choice doesn't really like sure it matters like from a personal perspective but from like a society-wide ethical perspective like you're not you're not really doing anything oh yeah i know this is this is kind of how i think about this stuff so yeah i think that the personal morality of like these choices i think that you i don't know i I hazard to say that trends uh, towards veganism and ethically sourced food, now we've got so many more options. Maybe it is, again, probably because I live in Brooklyn, that <laughs> we're able to just get like free range and grass fed and mm -hmm. more happy, happy chickens, as Daniel likes to call them, right. um, that have lived lives that are sort of more in adherence with the sort of personal philosophy mm -hmm. that he likes to... And I also like to. Oh, yeah. And I do. I mean, I spend a lot of money buying ethical meat when I buy meat. You know, it's <laughs> like, but I also, you know, and I'm, I, and I'm not trying to say like anyone should not do those things. I wish everyone could and were able to and did mm -hmm. that everyone who is able to did. But at the same time, it's also the sense of like, I don't know. It just kind of like goes both ways. It's just like just because I'm making these personal choices, I still like live within this system that makes these choices. Mm -hmm. And like, what's what's more important? Like my personal choices or the system's choices? And like, what should I what should I fight back against most? And I think I think I've answered this in different ways at different points in my life. Whether I've been a you know political activist or like a you know capitalist who's being a vegan for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like which of those is better? I'm not sure. <laughs> 
Cool. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? We're going to get kicked out of here in 15 oh. minutes. So. I have just enjoyed this conversation with you. This is really fun. I love talking books with you. Yeah, me too. Me too. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm really glad to get your perspective on this stuff too. It's been it's been really fun. Hopefully we can have you on again at some point here. Yeah, I would like to meet Matt. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. I know. We'll, we'll give him, I'll give him a lot of shit for not showing up. I always do. So. <laughs> this has been a much less... Uh, <laughs> antagonistic podcast than they usually are. Is it? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> you guys you guys have good banter, though. <laughs> we do. It's fun. We've known each other for so long, and so much of our knowing each other has been, you know, about agreeing so much that we come around to disagreeing with each other. So, <laughs> Cool. Well, all right. I will, I will, um, do you have anything that you want to, like, plug for the, you know, people who listen to this, anything online they should read of yours or, uh, Twitter account or I, I mean I, I honestly don't know I'm asking if there's anything you want to plug um no I, I definitely don't want to hug the mic uh no 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 I, I would like if you have anything that you no. know you want people to read or whatever. okay cool. I appreciate that absolutely no, I just yeah cool well this is you know I think that's our conversation for today then this has been fun like I said it's been a lot of fun and I'm glad to have you on and talk about this because I think it's definitely a different perspective um you know for our listeners i think matt and i are going to try to do a really short kind of wrap-up episode for the two of him so we can get kind of his final thoughts on the book too like i said he wasn't actually able to make it this weekend but i think we can record something over the week and then um our next book is going to i'll announce that now is going to be no mon by nick harkaway and we're really excited because max gladstone who is a fantasy author of um Oh, what, Full Fathom 5 and a couple of other books, uh, uh, he's he's agreed to come on. And so he's actually chosen Nomon. He wants to read that with us. And, you know, like we're going to have like an author talking about another author's work. And so that's going to be really exciting. And so he should be on both the um, he should be on both the pre-read and the post-read of that is the plan right now. Um, and so we'll have, you know, our Twitter account, which is at SpectologyPod on Twitter. I'll have a kind of updated schedule posted up there pretty soon. So you'll know what days that is. Next week, it'll either be me and Matt kind of doing a wrap up of this book or or it will be a week off for us, depending on like, you know, when when we're able to record things. We're kind of working around Max's schedule on our own. Um, yeah. So thanks to everyone for listening. Um, if you would like to if you have any comments about anything we've talked about, the book, um, you know, future books, suggestions for future books we should read, uh, please let us know at either Spectology Pod. Uh, at gmail.com or at SpectologyPod on Twitter. Uh, thanks again to Samir for sending a couple of questions. I, I mentioned one of them and there were a few others that I brought up just in conversation that were like ideas that he'd emailed to us, which were, which were cool. Um, yeah, and uh, as always, our music is by WJ. You can find him on SoundCloud by searching WJ and our artwork is done by Noah Bradley and you can find prints and whatnot of his at noahbradley.com. Um, and that's that's it for us again. Thanks again to Britt for coming on. Thanks for having me. Bye, everyone. Bye.